Hi, and welcome to How to Ruin Dinner, Conversations from the University. I'm your host, Mary Trays, and I'm here with my co-host, Valana Dondina Doolin. And our special guest, Adrienne Lerner, or Learns, as she just told me she's sometimes called. My students do call me Learns, so I, I find that to be an acceptable form of address at any time. Excellent. Excellent. And Learns means teacher, right, in German, or, or learner. So that couldn't be more perfect. It, it couldn't be. I, I do have a colleague who, if she had not changed her name when she married, would be Dr. Rath. And I'm very envious of that <laughs> um, because it sounds like a perfect Professor Marvel villain uh, style name. But absent that, uh, learner seemed destined for academia yes. at some point. Yes, it does. Well, what, you're our first episode this spring semester and our themes as we wrote to you are about political correctness and wokeness and safe spaces and all those non-controversial um, problems no I should I call them problems or cultural things that are floating around um, and I noticed today in the New York Times and I, I can see you're probably laughing that they had an article about DeSantis is uh, canceling. I'm, uh, see if I can use all those words at once. Canceling of uh, African American AP courses um, at the secondary school level. So I'm thinking we'll have lots to talk about. Indeed, it's an interesting time for free speech and academic freedom and intellectual diversity issues in in higher education and in K through twelve. Yeah, so maybe you could walk us through the you know path that you took to become the expert that brought you to how to ruin dinner. <laughs> uh, the path that uh, brought me here as as an expert in free speech issues is long, um, and I will tell any students or parents listening to this, that this should be the part uh, where you can focus on the fact that the major you choose at 18 does not have to dictate the entire rest of your life. Transferable skills are a great thing. I was always interested in policy uh, and politics and what people thought about government and institutions, um, but that was not, uh, when I went to college, the academic love that I found. So I fell in love with field archaeology. I did a lot of science, interdisciplinary studies studies. Uh, I went to graduate school in interdisciplinary, uh, in, in kind of an interdisciplinary focus in history um, and archaeology uh, and in political anthropology as well. Um, and for lots of reasons, uh, life, uh, academic and otherwise, uh, transitioned out of that, worked as a working uh, field archaeologist and an archaeocrat doing a lot of uh, kind of the politics and business and law around archaeology and archaeological survey. Um, and eventually, uh, that drove me to law school. I started 1L with my spouse. Don't recommend that. Um, <laughs> it's awkward when one person gets something right in class and the other one gets something wrong. Um, but uh, and, then, and then from there, uh, I kind of rekindled my love of uh, not just academia, because I had always wanted to be a professor, um, but my love of policy and these questions of of speech and democracy, what people think of the judiciary, how the judiciary kind of responds to different political stimuli. Uh, eventually, that led me to practicing law, being a law professor, and then ending up here at UNF teaching um, judicial behavior and public law. That is that is quite the path. That is a, a very interesting way. And, and I left it. out that it did like art law and, and things that actually had a nexus um, with free speech and expression and practice, um, but a long and, and twisty path, right? So transferable skills from one social science area to another, um, research skills uh, that did that. But I, I do joke that I change my career about every seven years, uh, but I... I feel at home here now. Yeah. I feel so like long, I've, I've finally put it all together. With you? How long have you been at UNF? <laughs> and where's next? Uh, now, um, you know, I love UNF. Uh, so I've been here, I guess I'm at six and a half years now. Oh, wow. wow. We, got, we got you just in time, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. We... <laughs> so the Indiana Jones part of your <laughs> career is still, is that still something 
that you are interested in, that you rely on f- for kind of a perspective on, you know, societies and cultural movements. I, it gives me great tools to look at courts and judges as structures that we've come up with, right, to govern ourselves, uh, laws as kind of expressions um, of cultural norms as well. So anthropology definitely gave me tools. Uh, now I just like to go and, um, you know, hear my colleague in that department, colleagues in that department's papers and go play in the archaeology lab um, occasionally. But I, I'm firmly I'm firmly in uh, political science now. But the, the transferable... Uh, skills that you learn are uh, can help you change disciplines and shift and and take on new interests and address them not just uh, with your advocation and your volunteer opportunities but also even shift into a new vocation. Yeah, and and so you feel like being interdisciplinary gives you an advantage. Absolutely. A, okay. Absolutely. Well, I'm also in an interdisciplinary space, so that's reassuring. <laughs> well, let, let's move the conversation then to the courts um, because. It does seem like we're in a time when the Supreme Court, at least, is um, coming under fire for all kinds of things. But particularly, I think we feel this politicalization of the courts has moved from maybe being um, hidden to being very um, obviously a feature of the way in which the courts— make decisions or what we can expect of the court's decisions. It's so, really a little bit unsettling because it dismi- it's the, the myth that the court is somehow outside of the political. And, and for those who are just listening, uh, she's smiling. So, I mean, that, but that is an illusion maybe that the, us commoners have held. Uh, perhaps. I mean, I think that law likes to very much pride itself in, in the majesty of law that is separate from policy. And I think if you ask any political science who study, scientist who studies this, we're going to say, no, these things are very deeply intertwined. Um, that law decisions aren't inextricable from policy decisions or policy outcomes, right? The Supreme Court can make a decision, but they can't necessarily enforce it. It requires government trust and public trust. Um, and I think that what you've noticed is there is this shift um, in public trust. It's not new. It's happened before um, in our in our past. And it also corresponds to frameworks that people have about other political issues, right? So um, if you lean liberal, you tend not to like a conservative Supreme Court and their decisions. Uh, that could work the other way uh, around as well. Um, and so I think what we're seeing is this time in which polarization elsewhere is really affecting how people view the courts, how people uh, see the courts, and in perhaps even how the court itself acts. Um, and there, there have been uh, changes in, in the kinds of decisions the court makes, the way uh, that the court um, is operating is, is getting more. But it's also uh, just the kind of curtains have been pulled back and we're, we're seeing more being written about the court. We're seeing more kind of public interest uh, in the court outside of decisions, right? Actual interest in, you know, articles in the New York Times and the Atlantic about do the judges get along? How do they actually act with each other? Um, that is trying to look, you know, the public's trying to get to know an institution that's not very transparent, that doesn't tell us about how they operate, um, that isn't on C-SPAN, right? They don't even um, televise oral arguments. Uh, and so the those curtains that hid the court for so long, I think, cultivate an air of mystery. It's very beneficial to the court, right? What we do is law. It's very important. Right? It, it gives this kind of um, you know, cultural weight and significance uh, to these things. Um, and, and that's really different than how our, our other branches of, of government act. And I think people want to interact with the courts in a way that's politically familiar to them. Um, and, and I think that that drives right some of this change in and how we we view and talk about the courts as the public now. Do you think that there is, like, I think there's a notion of, like, a progressive loss of the judicial system's um, maybe, like, ability to govern? I don't I don't know if that makes sense, but I guess this the court is a body that only exists, that only works insofar as we all agree that it, mm-hmm is worth that we all like 
You know what I'm saying? Certainly. Like they, yeah. they can't enforce their own yeah. decisions, right? Yeah. So Brown versus Board of Education largely worked because the president was willing to send um, troops to back up desegregation decisions, right, in mm-hmm. places where governors and local uh, law enforcement would not. Um, so the power of the court does rest on on trust in other government branches uh, and trust in the public. Yes, I think if uh, you are uh, of a progressive bent and you're looking at the decisions out of the court right now and you see for the first time in a long time to this change where it seems like there are these deep erosions of very significant social things, things like gerrymandering, things like Roe versus Wade, right? Um, and the court either stepping out of some of these venues or fundamentally kind of changing even recent precedent uh, in in these areas, um, that tends to then add to this kind of politicization and, and politics discussion of the court as well. You, you've mentioned trust a couple of times, and it does seem to me that some of the issues that we're going to be talking about this semester, trust is gone in the in a way that is more familiar to us. And what by that I mean we don't we we don't trust that the other person is acting often in good faith anymore. In fact, we seem to trust that they will be um, acting against us. And I'm thinking of the idea that we have to create these safe spaces or that free speech in the academy is now sort of walking a tightrope, that you're likely to be attacked if you say something that is discordant or upsetting or, you know, a dangerous ideas, in quote. And that that's, um, the trust seems to have moved from something that, we can assume people act in good faith to now an assumption that uh, we're likely to be attacked or we're likely to be hurt. And so that that idea of trust is interesting to me as a virtue. Like how do we create, or should we be even, creating an atmosphere of trust, um, you know, how do we develop that? And when it goes, when when it's gone, what's at stake, do you think? And and you know what I'm thinking about as well is the leaking of the documents from the Supreme Court. And when I first read, I didn't realize that was such a strange and unusual thing. And so then reading about how that never happens and how Problematic. It's exceptionally rare. Yeah. yeah, how problematic it is. It was frankly kind of surprising to me where it seems like we live in a world where nothing is um, safe, right? Stuff leaks out in all kinds of ways about all kinds of issues. So I was surprised by that. What will that kind of breach in the etiquette is is that the right word? The etiquette of, of the Supreme Court, how does that continue this, what I'm claiming is the undermining of our just common civility and our common expectations around trusting each other to presume goodness from us, right? A kind of goodwill. I think etiquette's a really great word to use in describing that, right? Because a lot of this is the Supreme Court makes its own rules for procedure and practice. It is heavily based on um, this kind of etiquette and professionalism uh, in law itself. Um, And a leak isn't just some kind of violation of the trust of the justices with each other, the trust that they maybe had uh, with their staff um, and their judicial clerks. Um, But I think especially institutionalists, perhaps like, like Chief Justice Roberts might think that it's, it's a, kind of betrayal to the secrecy of the court, right? And this transparency of the court, the public might look at that and say, look, transparency is necessary for democracy, right? Transparency is great. We should have more insight into what the court is doing. That's how we could hold the court accountable. It's one of the only ways in their lifetime appointments, right? Um, But the flip side of that 
if you're maybe asking some of the justices, is that uh, transparency or being able to view into the court and in things like the leak keep the court from being independent, right? That keeps them that lack of transparency keeps them insulated, makes them more judicially independent, um, and it keeps them from being kind of constant political fodder. How does it do that? <laughs> I, I, how does the secrecy protect them? I don't know if it's necessarily the secrecy. So we, we could take the, you know, you don't see clips uh, very often unless they're doing some kind of extrajudicial speech. Uh, on a news program, right, saying something and then having a lot of commentary after it uh, because they tend to release what they say as a court, right, in opinions. Um, And there's this whole uh, kind of ceremony that goes with it, right? They they release them online uh, during COVID, but it used to be you had to go up to the steps, right, to be there to get it. And you'd see reporters flipping through the opinions, trying to be the first to make their way through it um, and report on it. And so legal institutions love these... these kind of ceremonies and these in these cultural trappings, things like robes and gavels and being up on a dais, right? That. I was going to say the ritual of it. Right. The ritual of it is really, I think, central to its its uh, the identity of the court is is centered on these rituals. It survives through these rituals. It there it preserves something about the values and that opaqueness. I think. Um, Works in the same way that like the robes do, and the 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 ceremonial ritual kind of um, air that that cultivates keeps it from being, I don't know, touched. It sort of is kind of untouchable. I, I, you know, I think former justices have have said it best that it preserves the majesty of law yeah um and it uh keeps it from the perception of the taint of politics right <laughs> yeah. like it's it's not going to be influenced by crass and and base politics like we see out in campaigns or elections or congress um it's that part yeah. i think the curtain's <laughs> been pulled back on that, I, right? I think so <laughs> right and and i yeah. think yeah. that you're really seeing the supreme court trying to pull it back, right? Trying um, to pull it back. And, and they can't. So we got a live broadcast of oral arguments uh, when they had to move to telephone oral arguments uh, during um, during COVID. Bathroom and flushing. Right. <laughs> no, no one said they were great at telephonic arguments. Um, techno- technological shifts were a challenge uh, for all of us then. It ruins um, the magic. It, 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 so it erodes, right, that that yeah. majesty of law. Um, but, you know, the, that's not to absolve the way that the court is acting and making decisions, right? There have been real uh, shifts in how active the court is on, on some issues. So we look at religious liberty, and we look at uh, uh, things like uh, campaign finance or reviewing parts of federal law, uh, that they have been far more uh, active in some areas uh, that have been, you know, traditionally more quiet and, and overturning big precedent that uh, voters um, and citizens uh, have deep uh, and, and sometimes deeply divided feelings about. Right. And so that's going to um, that's what, going to have political effects. What? Yeah. What do you think that does? You mentioned a minute ago about. Um, how we think democracy should work, and the, this overturning precedent and making decisions that are well known to be popular. I think maybe I said that wrong, but we know that most Americans are in favor of some abortions, uh, having access to some kinds of abortion. And so when we see that um, you know, change in the precedent of Roe v. Wade, what does that do to democracy? So you're you're changing precedent, which is why am I saying this? You say what precedent does? Yeah, no, and then, I, and then that. So there's that, but it's also coupled with going against what um, you know most Americans have said they want. Now we've said terrible things in the past. You, you know, we've said about segregation in the past that we want it. So I. I understand that the public is not to be followed. 
or trusted to go back to trust. <laughs> but still, there is a piece of it where you want to nod to the president and a nod at least or some when you read these decisions that they acknowledge in some way the serious breach that's happening with you know our expectations for our rights and i right that I mean yeah. women have are going to be the ones that pay the cost physically mentally economically yeah. you know on and on and on and it, it's so there's a lot that's going on with a decision like that. No, and I think it's too easy for the Supreme Court to absolve itself and say, okay, well, then just go to the legislature with all of these things, right? Because then we get to um, questions of, well, okay, what's the legislative climate uh, right now um, looking like? You know, how effective is Congress at doing their job right now? Um, how do things like a lack of, um, you know, fair representation uh, or money in politics affect what's even brought to the floor of those things. So, I, you know, you on the one hand, you can say, OK, the Supreme Court is in charge of its own precedent. If it thinks that precedent is wrong and worth overruling and it can make a substantive legal argument for that, then that is within the power uh, they have given themselves. Um, and. If there isn't, you know, a, a fair kind of legislative avenue to then turn, right, this this over, what is it, you know, high 60s public support for some form of access to abortion, um, then we have a deeper problem than just the Supreme Court being 6-3 and having very strong ideas on, on hot button um social and political issues, uh, we, we have a systematic problem with how uh, public um, desires are, are represented um, or, or brought to the floor in our system. Yeah, it is. A, it's a, for me, anyway, it's hard to get the language right around it, but also to hold all those um, concerns in the air at the same time. Right, so that you're trying to understand the role of the court, you're trying to understand the decisions of the court, you're trying to figure out ways in which you can um, uh, protest or uh, actively pursue a different agenda. And all those things seem kind of overwhelming to keep in your head at the same time and work your way through, even to have a, an intelligent conversation around. I, look, I've built in my excuse for my fumblings. But. I, I'm going to complicate that even more. We pay disproportionate attention to nine justices on the Supreme yes. Court. Yes. I'm, when really um, a lot of law that affects us from day to day um, is made at the lower courts level. So our appellate courts are extraordinarily powerful and often have the last word um, in decisions of, of, uh, of national import um, and, and law that affects citizens from day to day. Uh, we are seeing lower courts get um, more willing in some areas to write, like push cases uh, towards the Supreme Court or to make decisions that um, enjoin um, or stay laws, you know, nationally uh, outside of outside of their their normal jurisdictions, um, and so we we pay attention to the Supreme Court almost because it's the most knowable part um, of the judiciary. And I'm not even going to complicate this by going into you know 50 state courts. Yeah. <laughs> um, after that, right? We have, we have a concurrent yeah. system, so we pay attention uh, to the final court, and there's good reasons for that. They are the final arbiter of constitutional law. They're the final um, you know court of appeals, but they get to choose their own dockets, right? They they get to look at the cases in front of them most of the time and say what they want to take, and the appellate courts get to take what comes before them. So. Uh, we have a very large structure of the judicial system that doesn't get 
public scrutiny as much. That doesn't get as much public attention um, unless, you know, what's happening there is one of these big issues like abortion where, you know, it seems destined from the time that Texas passes SB8 and there's the very first legal challenge that that's going all the way. Right. So where should we look if we want to educate ourselves around the appellate courts? Where should we look for that information? And so that is a really interesting question, um, because even among political scientists, the lower courts are less studied. Right. Far more judges, far more opinions. They're busier. They sometimes disagree with each other. Um, they change judges uh, and panels more often. Um, not every judge on an appellate court will hear every case, right? They sit in, in three judge panels. So it introduces all of these variables that make them more difficult uh, to study. Um, and they're doing so much that I don't think there's real media interest, right? Unless it's one of these, again, unless it's almost a, it's destined to go all the way. Uh, as a citizen, that's really hard, right? So you either have to take a judicial politics class. Um, there are uh, some uh, books on kind of uh, appellate courts out there. I, I'd say the best place to start is probably with a website of the uh, appellate circuit that you sit in. So if you're sitting here listening to this in Florida, that's the 11th. Um, and you can at least look up the ju the judge profiles and see, right, like where they're coming from, who appointed them. Um, get a sense of what kinds of cases uh, they're looking at. And when we talk about things um, like academic freedom or free expression, uh, then appellate circuits can make a huge difference, right? Because this is an area that we've seen, you know, hasn't been as active at the Supreme Court for a while. Um, and we've had the Supreme Court really, when it has gone to these areas, um, being very respectful uh, of of its precedent for especially, say, student speech. Um, but we have lower courts and appellate circuits, right, that are that are more active in these areas right now as states pass laws or as states try to regulate their higher education systems. So um, we're just at the stage now where we we don't quite know what's going all the way. We we have an idea, <laughs> um, and some of that might be might be uh, coming out of here in Florida. Do yeah. you ever, as an expert, find it shocking or concerning how little the public knows about the judicial system? Oh, I start my classes with that. I start my <laughs> I start my Supreme Court with that. I make them take a quiz. Um, oh, and then they, they feel horrible, right? And one of the things I ask is, okay, name any appellate judge that's been appointed in the last five no. years. And no one can ever do it. And it is fine. I, but just voted for some. Yeah, me too. So, so, so if you're... If you did retention elections uh, at the state level, um, then uh, for the for the Florida DCA um, and, and those retention elections have huge what we call roll off, uh, which means that, you know, people get to that part of the ballot and they go, I don't know anything about the judges. I was so Googling what are you going to so what are you going to do? You're going to do nothing. You're just going to turn in your ballot or or you just. Right. So. Yeah. So. So we see a lot of people who maybe do the contested, like elected uh, races, they get to judicial retention in Florida and they just stop. They don't fill in their ballot um, or what happens because almost always judges are retained. It's almost always by an overwhelming, at least in the you know mid 60s percentage, everybody just goes, yes, because I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and Ooh, my, oh, I, no, yeah, oh, I was guilty of Googling it on the spot and then based on the first like concise blurb I found making an opinion. And I'm not sure that I really agree with the decisions I made. And, and again, it's hard because yeah. sometimes the only information that you can get is who appointed someone. Yeah. Um, most people don't keep up with the day to day decisions of the you know state um, courts of appeal or even the state Supreme Court. I don't, right? I'm an expert in the field and there's no way that I could track all of this stuff, right? I, I even I even look for the stuff that's going to go all the way, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, can we pivot for, for a minute and talk about academic freedom um, and freedom of speech? Because that's your area also. So This, this um, is my area, yes. Yeah. Um, as we're looking at academic freedom, I mean, what is happening to academic freedom and maybe not even at the university level, but what are we looking at at the lower levels um, for teachers who want to teach history and are being told what they can and cannot 
bring up. Um, and and you know the we all know the you've got a big curriculum you got to get through, and you're trying to do American history, and um, you don't. I mean, high school teachers don't have a lot of leeway. They've got a lot of material, and they're moving. Um, and what does it mean now that we've got in Florida uh, these laws? that seem to restrict curriculum. How, how important are those laws? How enforceable are those laws? How do they infringe on our academic freedom? And who's, what's driving this other than a kind of political narrative that seems to be more interested in preservation of values for a particular population than ideas themselves or even in the case of history, the full panoply of experiences that we want students to realize were out there, right? That there were experiences of women and African-Americans and Hispanics in America that you know, when I went to school was certainly never addressed. And now it seems like there's a pulling back from any inclusion. Um, and, and so like, what is, what are these laws? Nationalism and national myth are really strong forces, right? So, um, so there are those uh, actions. There are, uh, of course, um, you know, what I've seen as, uh, Communities that have felt like they haven't had their views uh, represented on college campuses as much right now claiming um, a kind of free uh, expression um, rights uh, to campus that that they indeed uh, possess and pushing back on forces where, um, you know, others are saying, well, we want to create an environment where everyone feels safe or where everyone, um, you know, feels included or, or where we don't have to hear ideas we don't uh, agree with or that might be blasphemous to us or that, that might hurt our feelings. Um, and, and these are difficult things to reconcile. If we talk about just, you know, the broad thing that academic freedom is the most broad thing that it's encased in is, is free expression, right? And free expression is a, is, is a human rights kind of term and, and why we bristle when someone wants to, you know, control what we say or how something is said is because we know that we have this innate right um, to free expression. If we look at it in kind of the civil liberties context in the U.S., that that's very much then we have another kind of small circle within that. That's the First Amendment. And that really only covers government censorship, right, and, and uh, prosecution of speech. Uh, we're a public university here. So things that happen uh, on this campus, right, fall under um, under that that First Amendment circle as well. So uh, you, these are these are tough forces, uh, and and some of it goes to even generational changes in what people think are the power of of words, whether words themselves uh, can be just by themselves a threat or a form of violence or an instrument of hurt. Uh, compared to, you know, the kind of older sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know that words can hurt, right? But uh, feelings, but but causing a legal hurt, right, is a, is a different um, kind of calculus. Free expression uh, and free speech uh, and academic freedom are, are always going to be a, a tough pickle on campuses because people want to say different things and people want to have different things not said uh, around them, right? So there's no way to have free expression without this tension um, and without uh, really having to make a decision between uh, censorship or or freer expression, right? And I personally tend to uh, like to err on the side of freer expression, Um but the criticism, you know, back to that is is that you know that it means that the targets um, of hurtful speech often then bear a greater burden, right, um, under that kind of uh, that kind of system to have to deal with the effects of of free speech and, and free expression. 
academic freedom is like a, the, another tiny circle in that. When we talk about academic freedom, at least in the higher ed context, we're really talking about what professors can do uh, governing their class and then how they can use their expertise outside of the university. K through 12 is a whole nother thing. The Supreme Court has really separated those two things and given a lot more academic freedom uh, to college professors um, and given the state more control over their curriculum in the K through 12 environment. Uh, what we're seeing now uh, are several states trying to take that K through 12 framework and control and that belief that they uh, can can enter uh, the classroom or control curriculum in a way that they do in the K through 12 and try to put that into a in a higher ed environment. And some of that is on higher ed. Uh, we, like the Supreme Court, have hidden an ivory tower or behind a curtain and uh, relied a lot on public trust without being as good as we could have been for several decades about uh, telling citizens why we're important and what the mission of the university is and how it is critical to democracy. Some of that... It seems to be about feelings, like not hurting people's feelings. But I'm interested also in this attempt to control the curriculum and shutting out the experiences of certain portions of our population. Those seem to me to be two different things, mm -hmm. right? And I've, I I feel like the the feelings part of it is pretty easily covered by being respectful, and and that, I'm sure I'm simplifying, but that there's basic etiquette that's that's enforced or should be common courtesies that we know how to do. Do we? I mean, I think you uh, see the Hamlin University uh, controversy. Well, I, was gonna, I have that. <laughs> I, I mean, but th that's yeah. I mean, so, that, so what is that's will? There's something willful about, and Valana mm -hmm. and I were speaking about this. This wanting to be offended, and this seeking out offensiveness. That how are you going to regulate that? Right. I mean, it's anticipating an attack that then like makes. I don't know. It's a it's like a self victimization. And I hate. I know that that word is the victim thing and calling people victims and saying I'm a victim and that's also its own like hot button thing. But I do think that there is a level of, um, a, 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 yeah, a level of, of self victimization. I don't know. You know, it's that controversy is, is so tough. The, the professor in that. Maybe um, we should explain it just briefly. Right. So I, I was going to, so, um, uh, it's a controversy about an, an art professor, um, Erica Lopez Prater, I believe, who uh, showed an image. Um, I'm gonna get the century wrong. I'm terrible Four, at this, but it's 14, 14th, right? Yeah. So it's it's before uh, Islam had made the turn against figurative art, right? So uh, there were there was a depiction uh, of an irrespectful depiction made by uh, an Islamic artist of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Um, Current interpretations uh, of Islam that have existed um, for several hundred years uh, tend to eschew figurative art uh, that depicts uh, people uh, and um, and especially uh, depictions uh, of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, as as and so you know there is this question of whether just raised by a student that just showing that piece of art. Um, was an Islamophobic act, right? And then, and then criticism back instantly um, that it it was not uh, that it was part of an art history course. It was not that intent of how uh, it was done matters. That the professor um, had mentioned uh, that it was going to be shown that had given uh, people a warning. Um, you know, when you talk about this kind of priming people for being offended, right? That's one of the criticisms of things like trigger warnings and syllabi, that it yeah. primes people for offense. Yeah. Um, and then we've seen, you know, it, it, the Muslim community uh, and and organizations, you know, being kind of on uh, 
different taking different stances uh, on this debate too. But but what happened is the uh, adjunct professor um, with fewer protections uh, than tenured professors who would at least get notice in a hearing um, before a dismissal uh, was uh, not renewed. Um, and so uh, lost uh, her employment because of this controversy um, and is now suing. So, you know, as an idea of academic freedom, being able to control what you show in the classroom, even if that uh, is blasphemous to someone's religion or offends, like uh, challenging where people come in with certain values is the very idea the university, right? That we push for transformative thinking and transformative change that we are here to build minds. Um, and that does take community. We need to acknowledge that people come in with different frameworks, different views, uh, that they add uh, different things um, to our community. And that's all part of the discussion. Um, but academic freedom and, and free expression say that we have that discussion concurrent with showing these images or talking about these hard subjects, not instead of, right? So we don't shelter and screen. Um, we do the hard things and hard work. And, and it's impossible, too, when you have a group of people from different backgrounds and different communities, when they come together, it's impossible to accommodate everybody at once. So attempting to accommodate some people's needs and not others is already you're already discriminating something there. And it's just it becomes a mess. So I think that in itself is like expecting to be accommodated is is just not viable. I don't know. Every time I teach my First Amendment course, I say the same preface to the class. And that is I guarantee to offend you at some point in this semester. Um, and it's not as though I'm intentionally doing so. It's it's that. Everything that we are going to cover from um, you know, religious liberties to pornography and obscenity will most likely challenge, offend, or be against some framework or some value that you hold. Um, but the discussions that we have in a civil discourse kind of space where we can talk about tough things without self-censoring, without having to backtrack, without worrying too much um, – about our good intent to try to discuss these things um, is is important. And I've always found that students get on board with that once you invest them in kind of the decision making about, um, you know, what respect looks like uh, in the environment as we discuss these challenging things. Yeah, I think intention. Sorry. No, well, I was just going to say, what would be your recommendation at a place um, that runs into this conflict between a student's um, experience of a of a class, right, and the teacher's intention. Uh, how would you recommend handling that? Yeah, and good intent doesn't save someone from feeling bad or being offended by words. Um, you know, I. I assign older readings by the Supreme Court. They didn't. They do not use um, the words uh, for racial groups in the past that we currently find acceptable today. I might assign them in reading. I won't read them aloud in class. That's a personal choice, right? That I that I make. Um, but I you would never not read an important case or an important document or um, something because of of uh, that antiquated language. But it's certainly something we have to discuss, right? Or, or come to an agreement on as a class. I find that real uh, civil discourse frameworks where people are arguing and discussing in good faith uh, really make the difference uh, of how we can have these tough conversations. And we owe it to, you know, I think society as a university to say, look, we're putting out these educated minds um, and one of the things that we can do to do that is to teach people to talk about tough things, especially as we're moving into such a highly partisan and polarized environment that the best hope for getting out of that um, is really uh, some of the things that are essential to our mission as a university. And if we want to talk about, you know, will this precedent that we have in higher ed um, for academic freedom stick? 
it's a fairly thin precedent, I do have to say, right? People think that it is, it's very much set in stone. Um, it really is a handful of cases um, and, and then some unresolved issues about how those apply, actually, that have been decided by appellate courts who don't necessarily agree with each other on the issues. Um, you know, I, I take a little bit of hope that there are a bunch of folks sitting on that highest court who've been professors themselves. Um, and I'm really hoping uh, that if I'm looking at judicial behavior and I'm thinking about all of those non-law things that a judge might bring into the room that might influence their decision making in a way they probably wouldn't admit, I'm really hoping that one of them is that so many of them have been in front of a classroom themselves. And, and might be naive and hope, but I'm hoping it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. right. Promoting the the investigation of ideas. Well, uh, okay. So I'm taking from that from your answer that you would prefer to see issues that arise taken care of in the classroom itself rather than with the administration. And so should should the administration be pushing us? and I say us, meaning the student and the professor, back to the classroom and say, hey, be saying, hey, you all need to spend a little more time handling this before we step in. I'm thinking of Hamlin College. Like, how did it get to the administration and the rescinding of an offer to teach without... It, I don't know enough about it, but it sounded from my, from my reading about it like it happened more quickly than the community, the larger community, had time to ingest and investigate. And so, if it ha if something were to happen here at UNF where a student was was offended, what would you want to see happen? You know, a student takes this to the her advisor. Or to the dean. Well, how could we imagine a um, you know a, a vector of conversations that lead us to resolving it in a more? I think this is the work of chairs, and I think it's been the work of department chairs for a really long time. Right? Um, students don't always feel comfortable if they feel there's been some negative interaction with the professor addressing the professor first. They absolutely yeah. should if you're a student listening but to this. But their grades are on the line. Right. I mean, that sure. is totally so, understandable. So it's the department chair. Um, and, 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 and that is kind of the structure built in. And hey, from do there, you think students uh, know dean, that structure? Like, I, don't, I think they do. do I, they? Mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. As a body. student, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on behalf of the student body, um, I... I was not that's actually not where my I I wouldn't have thought of going to the department. Where would you chair. go? Student ombuds. <sighs> hmm, I didn't even know that was a thing. I'm going to be honest. I really didn't until literally like Everyone yesterday. Everyone should know that's a thing. Yeah, that yeah, is a thing. I... Plug for the ombuds. Um, but I honestly think I would maybe go to another professor that I admire. Uh, so we would probably ourselves. So if there was something happened in my class, I'd probably put it on my my department chair's radar, and mm -hmm. and then say the students involved, and then the department chair would probably do Reach that. Out, yeah. If you went to another professor that you trusted, that same thing would probably probably happen. Um, but we do try to keep these and and framing those conversations of hey, what happened in class? Uh, we do a lot of this work around HB seven, right? That was that was passed um, in. Part of my job as a faculty fellow and, and Dr. Sean Frieder's job uh, as, as the faculty fellow of civil discourse has been to talk about how to have these discussions where we involve students with, you know, the university is supposed to be challenging. We might be presenting things um, that we ourselves don't agree with. Um, we'll be presenting diverse viewpoints. You won't agree with them all. We won't agree with them all. Uh, but we find that they're important to read because they're vital to the field for reasons X, Y, and Z. And really contextualizing why we do the hard stuff, why I'm assigning a challenging reading, why we're talking about critical race theory, right, as part of, you know, a, a very active school of kind of legal thought um, for uh, for several decades um, and the criticisms of it. Right. And so 
being good about situating things in our disciplines, being good about uh, giving folks the reason why, you know, we're doing this challenging reading or why we are having someone look at a 14th century image of the prophet Muhammad, even though, um, you know, figurative art is, is, um, is no longer something uh, that's that's as produced uh, in in Islamic art. It, the why is really important in it, and I think that we perhaps fed knowledge for a while and got away from the whys. Um, and we we do the whys all the time as professors. That's our research, right? So some of this is just bringing our research and our expertise and things into the classroom, um, and trusting that students are ready for this and want to be involved in this and and want this this kind of context and, and knowledge. So it's not just spoon feeding, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like something, but really involving students yeah. in, in inquiry. And I think that goes back to my liberal arts roots, right? So I'm in my interdisciplinary roots. So mm-hmm. I'm just fundamentally a, a huge um, yeah. believer in that. And we don't need to, to go towards false balance, right? It's not like every, you know, viewpoint has to have a counter viewpoint. Talking about how disciplines work, how peer review works, how research works, how a scientific consensus is reached, right? This is, we got out of the business of doing this. And I think we got out of the business not only of doing this for our students, but we got out of the business uh, in academia of doing this for society at large. Mm-hmm. And when we did, and we pulled the curtains closed society trusted us less right i think i think you can draw a lot of parallels between how we started talking about the supreme court and and maybe um you know some of the challenges facing professors today yeah so it it sounds like sort of to wrap it up that just a more common agreement on how we're going to conduct ourselves and investigate ideas could solve a lot of this if to, to a point. I mean, the right. threats against academic freedom are real, right? Yeah, I mean, and, I the, and the impetus for state control and increased state control of curriculum in universities is, is real. Um, and it comes with a, you know, those laws are coming with enforcing a decided viewpoint um, and, and content and things that in, you know, kind of your traditional First Amendment analysis have been... Uh, the, the courts have found problems with. So it, it is a very real threat. It's a very real threat to the erosion of what the purpose of the university is, uh, what the university uh, does, um, and the value of the university as an institution uh, for democracy and freedom and free expression and free thought. Well, I have to say that all the controversy around um, CRT has done wonders for Critical race theory. <laughs> I mean, in that same more way, spoken about now the, than it has been since yeah. since in the seventies. Same way that banned books um, invariably lead to more people reading and thinking about them. Um, so there is that that aspect of it that is positive in some sense. <laughs> that it does open the conversation up. Um, and it does force us to ask, what are they teaching in school? And, you know, I put my kids through schools, too, and you're interested in what the curriculum is. Um, but to, just to go come full circle again, there used to be, it seems like, a little bit more trust um, between the parents and the schools and the society at large that we were interested in facts. I'm thinking of history. Um, We were interested in tradition and that those two things um, often have to be shaken up, right? Our investigation of the facts has to be shaken. Are we telling the story really in a factual way? We assume it and then we question it. And then that comes back as a reinvestigation of the topic. I, I think I think the public perception of what we do as academics is 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 the title of your podcast, right? Yes. My job, if you're a freshman, is to 
ruin Thanksgiving dinner, yes. right? According to <laughs> according to your parents. I mean, it, it, I make it as a glib joke in some classes, right? Okay, now's your first big holiday, you know. Right. Go home and... Guys, if I could just ask you to do something. I always <laughs> tell the class, I said, just ruin dessert, right? <laughs> like, make it through dinner, but you are totally empowered to ruin dessert. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the public perception, right? Like somehow we're going to change or indoctrinate this. And, and really what happens is that college just comes at a time where people are finding ideas on their own. People are growing up, people are asserting uh, independence. They are, they are being, we, we are at a point where people are becoming their own people. And that is not something that only happens 18 to 22. I changed my career every what, seven, seven years, years right? Because <laughs> I'm in this constant journey of, of becoming a, a, a new person. It's just that word indoctrinate. The, the, the image of DeSantis in the news today holding up, he was standing in front of the freedom from indoctrination sign. And so it's so, yeah, I, I think that's what I was getting at. Like the, this idea that we're teaching one thing and then that has to be reinforced investigated and then we you know we're that dialogue about the role of facts and what we're doing and what we're teaching is always present i mean in some way mm-hmm. this is not new and parents have always right had concerns around this so i i mean maybe what i'm saying is shouldn't we in some way be embracing this fight knowing that ideas are getting out there like critical race theory and the role of uh, the Hispanic community in the past or what, whatever the, the hot I mean, I teach religious studies. So it's a regular occurrence that people leave my class crying, which breaks my heart. But you cannot teach religious studies and not step on people's toes. It's, you can't. It's, yeah. it's impossible. So... I feel like we should, in some way, be saying this is what we do. Yes, it, it is a chance. It is a chance to get the message out there that learning is messy and uncomfortable. Yeah. right? And I think there's this real kind of impetus in a consumer model university to make it comfortable. Um, and and it is, you can't teach religion or politics, um, no. science in, in some ways, uh, public health. Like I, I can name so many fields where there's real discomfort, right? You're going to, you're going to encounter some discomfort. I promise I will, you know, my promise to my 1A class, I promise I'll offend you. I think that it's, that's just the university in that way is just a microcosm of like the greater world because you're not going to be able to step out into the world as a person in the world, participating in society and job and your career or whatever without facing those same challenges. And so I think this is a good opportunity for people to learn how to navigate that in a space that is like somewhat controlled and I don't know. Yeah. I think it's a very human thing to want to be comfortable and to want to feel as though one belongs and free expression fundamentally can and does challenge that comfort. So the impetus to react against it is, is understandable, but, uh, but the stakes are high when, when we give in to, to censorship. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I know we should wrap up, but um, that idea of belonging is really interesting to me, too. And especially how do you create belonging at a university? Um, and I think sports have done it a lot of times, right? That's an important way, you know, being a fan. But that belonging to a community that is willing to be challenging we got to promote that a little better, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, we like to end with a story about, now you've told us how you ruin your classes, but maybe <laughs> you could tell us how you've ruined dinner. And I, I got the impression you were from a big family or at least a loud family. Yes. Or yes, big right. and so loud. That's what I, I come from. I think those two things go together. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have a large extended family. I, I only have a, a large um, nuclear family. Um but we have uh, we have traveled and lived abroad, um, and as a family of loud, disparate religion, disparate backgrounds, um, uh, folks, 
I am positive um, that I can't think of a, a time when I myself have maybe ruined dinner um, within my family or friends. But the great thing about ruining dinner is a lot of times you don't know that you've done it. Oh, yes, right. And so that's so to, to ask me if I if I'm conscious that I've ruined dinner, um, I I. I'm sure I have, and apologies to anyone out there um, when I did ruin your dinner. Uh, but I can guarantee that, uh, on the whole, Clan Learner has uh, offended and ruined dinner somewhere at some point for someone um, <laughs> just by being uh, our our loud American selves. I mean, my I love of discourse you... comes from the family dinner table of, of arguments, fights, and ruining desserts. So. I'm guessing you were also entertaining to other people um, in, in, who happened to be in proximity to all that chaos. So maybe I... it's balanced out. You know the the the, the ruining you ruin your and, own dinner and the entertaining you, you make somebody else's dinner perhaps or 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 we fed um, negative loud American stereotypes oh. abroad. Okay, well you're not alone in that. All right, well thank you so much for for joining us. It's been enlightening and we really appreciate yes, it. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you for you. inviting me.